Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, we're waiting for the line to settle a little bit. Um, yeah, come sit here, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Okay, great. Thank you. How are you? Um, uh, I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which gives me the honor of hosting this uh, seminar. Um, this is our last uh, seminar of the year, and it is uh, an exciting one to have to close the year out. Um, uh, today, uh, our um, speaker is uh, Professor Valerie Hudson, who holds the George H. W. Bush Chair at Texas A&M University. Um, uh, Professor Hudson is a, a, a very widely admired uh, scholar of uh, international security and foreign policy. Uh, in 2009, foreign policy named her one of the top 100 most influential global thinkers. Uh, her book, uh, Bear Branches, Security Implications of Asia's Surplus Male Population, uh, received uh, major media attention and won two National Book Awards. She's subsequently written two other books, uh, one on sex and world peace, and another, her current uh, book project, which I think we're going to hear some uh, about, is the Hillary Doctrine, How Sex Came to Matter in American Foreign Policy. Um, I, I, if I went, I, I could, if I gave you a fuller picture of, of Valerie, I could be up here for a very long time. I'm just going to throw out a couple of other highlights. One of the exciting things um, that uh, Professor Hudson done is created this Women's Stats Project, which is this um, database, nation by nation database that's used not only by uh, scholars, academics, but also foreign policy folks, or, or policy folks, I should just say more broadly. She's actually going to give us a little bit of, um, of a preview on that. Um, one thing that is just fun that I wanted to share, um, we, uh, in the New York Times, they oh. announced the um, Andrew Carnegie Fellows of 2015 in a full-page advertisement in the, in the New York Times. And our speaker today is on this list. in the room. So I'll just uh, hand it over now. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much. Oh, we technologically sound here? Is it going to work? Almost. Okay. I'm delighted to come back here. Uh, I've had nothing but lovely experiences in this room. I've been here, I think this is my third time here. And uh, I always find stimulating conversation. I find viewpoints I've never considered before. And I'm really looking forward to engaging with you as soon as I finish this this presentation. So um, what do you think? Are you almost there? Okay. There we are. I did want to say uh, just a couple of things about the database. And you'll notice there's some shiny brochures right there at the end of the table if you're interested in this database. Uh, and I, I have to, to talk about it because it's kind of been taken over my life since, uh, you know, 2000, uh, which is um, uh, coming off of the Bear Branches work that Hannah was alluding to, where we were able to show that what was happening with the security of women was actually affecting the security of the nation, which back in in those days was actually kind of a revolutionary proposition, not quite as revolutionary now, but back then it was like, oh, you mean like women and security could be in the same sentence and, you know, it makes sense. Uh, We decided that we wanted to to look at uh, the situation and status of women much more broadly than just sex ratios. 
And so we, we, we wanted to look at both uh, customary practices as well as laws, as well as what we, what we would usually consider data, right? Some sort of indicator prevalence or incidence of certain phenomena, such as rape. And we discovered, um, as, as many of you in this room who've looked at gender issues um, probably uh, have, is that there sort of wasn't one go-to place. And not only that, the go-to places that existed only had the data part, the incidence and prevalence types of parts, uh, numerical parts, but the qualitative data, the kind of qualitative data about norms and customs and practices and understandings, and then the data on laws, which of course is also qualitative, was really missing from um, the whole picture. So we put together this uh, humongous database. It started out smaller, because I thought this was only going to be a three-year project. <clears throat> uh, it's grown tremendously. Uh, we now have co-PIs, not just in the US, but uh, in Europe and in the Middle East and in Latin America. Uh, and uh, we've received some major funding recently from the Department of Defense to expand our, our data collection. And so even though I'm not going to tell you we're you know, the finest source that you should go, oh, we are. But you know, there's, there's lots of other really good sources, right? And one of the great things is Data2x initiative has recently tried to put uh, a lot more emphasis on getting the kinds of data that you need to do rigorous uh, analyses. But we, we absolutely fill a niche, uh, and that niche has to do with the, our, our wholehearted embrace of qualitative data and what can be extracted from it. So I did want to show you our fancy website here just because we've spent so much time on it, gall darn it, you've got to take a look. Uh, so we have lovely, wonderful maps. We have like uh, 30 different maps that can be downloaded from our site. We actually have an RSS feed, which is uh, live, what data is actually going into the database as we speak. Um, our, our group of uh, two dozen coders is working every day uh, to keep the database updated and to get new information. Um, so if you're interested in learning about how to, um, to access our data, how to see our research and so forth, um, you let me know. I'd be happy to linger a few minutes afterwards or uh, take a brochure, contact me later, and we can talk about it. Uh, but in the meantime, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to talk about the book. So let me see here. This is so small. How do I just, like, make the page go away? <laughs> ah, I see. How did you get that to come down for you? It was just, it just popped up. It just popped up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I am so glad that you did. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Um, I do empirical analysis. I do qualitative and quantitative research. In fact, I teach a qualitative and quantitative methods class. In fact, I'm right in the middle of that class now, and my students are forced to be doing all of this rigorous empirical analysis. Um, so it's a little bit ironic that I ended up co-authoring a book that basically has no empirical analysis in it at all. So if you want the empirical analysis, you need to buy the book Sex and World Peace, which at uh, the last time I was here at WAP, that's what I was talking about, was Sex and World Peace. But this book, uh, we were being pressed by our publisher, Columbia University Press, and they said, we published Sex and World Peace. It's been a fantastic seller. Gloria Steinem put it as number three on her list of absolutely must-read books in order to complete the feminist revolution. I mean, you can't ask for better publicity than that. So, uh, and they said, we want you to make, um, you know, 
the same kinds of arguments, but in a format that would be really, really timely, really lively, would really bring people in, don't you dare run a regression, you know, and <laughs> we thought, well, okay, maybe I could do that. Uh, so I teamed up with actually a journalist, Patricia Lytle uh, from Vancouver, uh, and, and she and I um, decided that we would tackle this book, The Hillary Doctrine. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it today. Um, the actual book itself uh, will be available uh, in June. One of the chapters of the book is actually available on Amazon. Amazon is a free download for e-readers, so if you're interested in that, um, feel free. Okay, um, the first piece Pat and I wrote for uh, that was sort of non-academic was a piece for foreign policy several years ago in which we uh, actually took the Obama administration to task um, for uh, kind of neglecting the situation of Afghan women. Um, and um, as we, uh, we were mulling over this proposition from our publisher, uh, we realized that um, this was kind of a unique point. This is around 2010 when we were talking about the genesis of this book. And uh, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. But she had already kind of made it clear that she was just staying one term. And no matter what happened in the election, she was gone. We thought to ourselves, this is kind of unique because for the first, even though we had two previous female Secretaries of State, we didn't have one that made women kind of, you know, the top of the priority list, right? We didn't have that. Uh, and she was going to be gone. There would be four years in which we had a Secretary of State who made this an explicit focus of American foreign policy. We thought, that can't be lost to history, right? It can't be lost to the slipstream. We have to go in and we have to look at it um, from a variety of ways and make sure uh, that this remains on the agenda for the next president. So we were always in our mind thinking about, you know, how can this book help keep these issues alive for the next president? Um, and uh, we had originally um, uh, always intended from the start to do field work. My colleague, uh, she went to Guatemala and Mexico and Yemen and Afghanistan. We were going to go to Egypt and China, but our funding fell through on that. Um, and uh, turns out that in writing a book, uh, publishers also have page limits. <laughs> and uh, so all of our work on Mexico is actually going to be forthcoming in a subsequent article. We couldn't put it in the book. Now, the book is uh, a little weird in the sense that it's got a tripartite structure. Um, so, um, and it's also important to know the book is not about Hillary Clinton herself, right? It's about the Hillary doctrine, right? It's about the idea... Uh, that what's happening with women, the subjugation of women, is a threat to international and national security. Uh, so th the first part um, is pure history. Uh, and uh, I really admire people like Karen Garner, who's sitting right here, who is able to write lively, colorful histories. I found it extremely difficult. I'm used to running, you know, uh, arithmetic moving averages. And here I am trying to reconstruct uh, an interesting and lively chronology. I was helped in the matter by people such as Ambassador Swanee Hunt, who's right here, who was able to help me to reconstruct some of the real pivotal points in how women began to rise 
uh, uh, on the agenda of those who do foreign and security policy. And so um, the second part, however, is a sort of theory and cases. And I felt a lot more um, happy moving from history to something else. And in part two, we ask, uh, is the Hillary Doctrine justified, right? If you're interested in international and national security and peace, right, would you be interested in women? And of course, anybody who's ever read any of my work would know that the answer was yes. But <laughs> we put in um, three, and I think they're really excellent chapters that talk about uh, the theoretical background of this. And, and that uh, we have an entire chapter from our field work in Guatemala, where I think the femicide rates are some of the very highest in the world. And then we have a chapter on Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And it's that chapter which is actually the uh, chapter that Colombia has put on Amazon for free. And the third part, which I was also very interested in, was the implementation. So you've got this incredible idea, totally justified idea, <coughs> totally right idea. How does that meet the American foreign policy bureaucracy? Okay. Um, how do you implement something like the Hillary Doctrine? How did we implement something like the Hillary Doctrine? Uh, what worked, what didn't? What do we learn from this? Uh, and uh, there's three chapters there looking at what we call the good, the bad, and the ugly of the implementation. Uh, we also have what I think is a really great chapter on Afghanistan as a litmus test for the Hillary Doctrine. And then the final chapter, as you can imagine, is the to-do list for the next president. Now, for this talk, you're going to get cheated. As I was preparing this, this uh, lecture, and it's, you know, uh, it took me days uh, to do this, is, is that you can't condense a 300-plus page book into one PowerPoint. It just, it, you know, it doesn't work. You've got to leave stuff out. So um, if you were here for the history or the theory, uh, I'm, I'm really sorry, you're not getting it. <laughs> you know, you could buy the book, though, and then you'd get it all, right? So that would probably be the best alternative. Um, what I'd like to focus on primarily here, especially since the title of your program is the Women in Public Policy Program, is I'd like to look at the implementation part, because um, uh, this is something uh, that not many people know about me, but when I was younger, I was actually in the Army Reserves. And do you know what my MOS was? I was a 63 Bravo 20, which is a wheeled vehicle and power generator mechanic. And so I've always had this mindset of, yeah, yeah, it's a great idea, right, that we want our vehicles to move, but there's like an implementation issue here. Let's look at the carburetor. Let's look at the brakes. Let's see if it's all working properly to get us down the road. And so I'm, uh, I think it's just woven into my DNA that I am deeply interested in how ideas get translated into practice and what we learn by looking at the pitfalls that, uh, that uh, crop up, unexpected pitfalls. So what is the Hillary Doctrine? I am sure I don't know have to tell you, right? It's this notion the subjugation of women is a threat to the common security of our world and to the national security of our country. No American Secretary of State had ever uttered anything close to that before. Another way that uh, Hillary Clinton put it was the suffering and denial of the rights of women and the instability of nations go hand in hand. Uh, I downloaded from the Clinton Presidential uh, Library virtually every speech she ever gave, and I can tell you that um, some incarnation 
of this proposition has been around in her mind and her heart for a very, very long time. So the chance to actually uh, act upon this as Secretary of State, I think, was probably a, a welcome opportunity. I'll just say to you in terms of the field work and my academic research that, yes, her premise is ab absolutely sound, right? Um, the notion that the subjugation of women is important to international national security, I, I can show that to you. We have an evidentiary base now. I think it's incontrovertible. Um, my favorite quote probably, and forgive me, Swanee, actually there's several of you that have quotes in the book, um, but, uh, uh, but I'll, I'll give my apologies to Swanee who gave me the most extensive quotes. My actual, my favorite quote is from Donald Steinberg who was um, formerly Deputy Administrator of USAID. Compare those societies that respect women and those who don't. Who's trafficking in weapons, drugs? Who's harboring terrorists and starting pandemics? Whose problems require US troops on the ground? There's a one-to-one -one correspondence. Don't tell me there's no relationship between national security and the empowerment of women. Okay, I think he nailed it. Um, in our final chapter, we actually put forth kind of a theoretical argument that uh, what we, this little term we coined, all right, uh, femme politique, we argue is actually a pillar of clear-eyed realpolitik. And I know you're here at the Kennedy School, and realpolitik is very big, right? And I've met many of these gentlemen. They're mostly gentlemen. And uh, I can tell you that, that they think that, that if you are a follower of realism, that looking at women is stupid, right? So we've tried to make the argument that if, if you really believe in realpolitik's insistence that we look at the world as it is and not how we would like it to be, then you're going to have to take the Hillary Doctrine seriously. And I think we... Uh, Can I add one more thing yeah. about Don? Because beyond AID, he was the head of the Africa desk during, <coughs> during the Rwanda genocide for the National Security Council. He also was many other things, many, many other things. You know, Ambassador to Angola, he did you know, the peace agreements. And one of the things he said about the peace um, agreement that he was so proud of in Angola, because it was gender neutral, he said actually he realized that any peace agreement that's gender neutral is gender stupid. Mm -hmm. Because that's you right. start out with such an imbalance. So this is a guy who's been the leading male voice on this issue for um, 17 years. Yeah, he's, he's an incredible man. I, I'd never, I had not known him before doing the research for this book, and I was so pleased to have found him. Um, I, I can show you, and Jenny could show you, all right, so many, many studies linking what's happening with women to a whole variety of things, whether we talk about durability of peace accords, food security, security demographics, health, wealth, quality of governance, interstate relations, you know, you name it. Right? We've got some kind of analysis uh, through the work, the court, I'm not just talking about my own analysis, but there's a body of good empirical work now that is beginning to tease out these relationships here. Okay? So I don't think it's possible to be a realist anymore and not look at women. I don't think it's possible. In fact, I would like to suggest to you that the Hillary Doctrine does something kind of cool conceptually. Okay? We met a couple of people who said, look, 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 <laughs> Professor Hudson, women are just the canary in the coal mine, right? 
And if you focus on women, then you're just putting a gas mask on the canary. You're not dealing with the real problems. And you can imagine that after having been steeped in this for so long, I say to myself, that's, that's wrong. Women aren't the canary. Male-female relations within the society are the coal mine. And the canaries that are tweeting for their life, right, are poverty, malnutrition, ill health, explosive violence, and so forth, right? And I think this is the conceptual difference wrought by the Hillary Doctrine, and that's why it's so significant, right? Women are not epiphenomenal, right? What's happening with women in the society is foundational. It's foundational to all of these other macro-level uh, consequences. Now, before we look at the implementation of the Hillary Doctrine, which is where I really want to go, I do want to suggest, you know, right off the top here, that there's some real moral quandaries, okay? Not just to trying to focus on women generally, but to Americans trying to focus on women. Um, and, uh, you know, one of them, I mean, are, are one of the chapters of our book is called A Conspicuous Silence, U.S. Foreign Policy Towards Saudi Arabia Under Hillary Clinton. Okay? There were um, there are issues uh, that were never raised publicly, such as with Saudi Arabia and its treatment of women, China and sex-selective abortion. These kinds of things were never raised by Secretary of State Clinton during her four years. Uh, another critique that we commonly found among our interviewers, especially while we were at the UN, um, is that Hillary Clinton had blood on her hands. And at first I was like, excuse me? Um, and uh, the viewpoint expressed was that Hillary Clinton had knowingly encouraged the women of Afghanistan and Iraq to stand up so that they could be more easily shot, right? That America was not, in the end, going to protect these women and that she had blood on her hands for encouraging them to stand up in the first place. Then we found that there was actually a kind of a vibrant debate, I won't say rancorous, I'll call it vibrant debate, um, between kind of a group we called the feminist hawks and the, and, 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 and the feminist hawks viewing the other crowd as uh, Pontius Pilots. That is, what about the issue of using military instruments to quote unquote help women? One of the most uh, eloquent spokespersons of this critique was Ann Jones. And some of you may be familiar with her through her absolutely amazing book called Kabul in Winter and then her follow-up book called, um, what is it, War is Not Over When It Ends, okay, that uh, have a very strong gender component to it. And um, Ann Jones, uh, her point was that the U.S. cannot help women through its foreign policy because of its foreign policy. That is, it's, it's militarist foreign policy. Let me read you a little quote from her. She says, um, our country, and she's speaking of the United States, shouldn't do anything for women because of our attitude about how good we are despite the incredible damage we've done. If the U.S. wanted to help women, it could stop making war. It's the prime destabilizer, and when it's over, the worst of the boys come to power. In Iraq, women have lost 100 years. In Afghanistan, the gains are already being lost. 
The Hillary Doctrine is a good one, but we're not the right country to carry it out. Better to give our aid money directly to Norway and tell them, please spend this money on your programs for women and we won't look over your shoulder. Okay, this was not an isolated viewpoint, all right? The idea that, you know, we can't do it. And then when you look, right, at countries where we've been involved or, or you know, Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, even Egypt in a way by sort of, you know, standing back and allowing things to unfold, you know, this wasn't an Arab spring for women. This was an Arab winter for women. And who supported uh, the surge in Iraq? Who supported intervention in Libya? Who supported even arming rebels in Syria? Who supported Afghanistan and so forth? Well, you know, Hillary Clinton did. Hillary Clinton did. Uh, so uh, that's another uh, point of critique. And of course, the common critique, which you would have expected is, who are you to do anything for women when you can't do anything for your own women, right? How come you can't ratify CEDAW? How come you're one of three countries in the world with no paid maternity leave? Your legislature is composed of 20% women. The Afghan legislature is composed of 25% women, and who insisted on that 25% quota was the Americans. All right, so if you can't even do it right for your own, you know, what gives you, all right, the right to do it for anybody else? So we got lots of this, right? We got people who said Clinton is a hawk, right? And that's inimical to, to uh, uh, the interests of women. She's a hypocrite, right? If it's Saudi Arabia and China, that's a different kettle of fish, right? Or she's just naive and she doesn't really understand uh, the whole situation. Uh, you know, we suggest, I think, with Anita McBride, uh, and if you don't know who she is, she was the former chief of staff to First Lady Laura Bush. Um, we were talking about these kinds of critiques. And so even though Anita McBride, you know, is, is a Republican, she said, look, the alternative would have been what? Right? The tough work is to get out there and help. And so we're going to springboard off of McBride and ask, so did we help? Okay. That's, that's probably the better question to ask. Rather than say, give your money to Norway, why don't we say, under the most you know, feminist-focused uh, Secretary of State we've ever had, did we help? All right, so uh, when speaking of the implementation of the Hillary Doctrine, um, we found <clears throat> very early on that you couldn't just talk about implementation as a piece. Right? They, they were actually, in a sense, three parts to it. Right? So there's sort of the executive framework, the framework of uh, commitments, uh, the framework of reporting, framework of policy guidances and executive orders that are put into place. Right? And then in terms of actually doing something out there, right, be beyond a rhetorical level, right, we do that primarily through contracting. And then you also have to look at what are the contractors doing on the ground. So there's three levels of analysis that we must pay attention to. All right, let's look first at this framework of commitments. Um, Jen Klein, who's sort of uh, Hillary Clinton's um, <clears throat> top advisor on global women's issues, was kind enough to uh, grant me an interview. And she said early on, all right, uh, we uh, informally adopted the following four principles that would guide our work for women um, while uh, Secretary Clinton was uh, in her role. 
It's a nonpartisan issue. The United States is not imposing its views on other nations. That is, um, of all the human rights treaties under the UN framework, the one with the most signatories is actually CEDAW. CEDAW. Now, of course, which treaty has the most reservations to it? CEDAW. All right? But, <laughs> you know, the, all of, of this agenda, right, is enshrined in CEDAW. Right, which approximately 190 nations have signed on to. So this isn't a US-centric type of thing. Um, third, and of course I like to hear this, the work must be based in evidence, even though we also feel it's the right thing to do. Right? So the recognition here that feeling that improving the situation wound is right has to go hand in hand with empirical analysis that justifies that. And then lastly, and of course, this is the one where I always sort of sigh. Um, these efforts must demonstrate that the benefits accrue not only to women, but to national, SOSP national interests, such as security and prosperity. So in fact, um, Jenny and I were talking about this at breakfast, right? Uh, your analyses at some point to become policy relevant, you also have to usually show that there's some sort of loss. You could have a higher GDP if, Right? You didn't have these normative constraints that hobbled women in terms of workforce participation and so forth. Right? So trying to make the case of what is lost to you, even if you don't care about women, right? which a lot of the, the uh, uh, recipients of this information don't, making the case that you're losing. Even if you don't care about women, you're still losing. All right, so let's talk about some of the more global commitments. Now, obviously, we have not signed CEDAW. Well, no, we have signed CEDAW. We haven't ratified CEDAW. Jimmy Carter signed CEDAW. Um, but uh, we do now have a growing list of uh, commitments under a variety of UN Security Council resolutions. And these are simply, this is, of course, the foundational one, UNSCR 1325 in the year 2000, that kind of says, look, Women are important uh, to peace and to post-conflict reconstruction, and they need to be represented at the table. And then around the time that Clinton was Secretary of State, we also have a variety of, of uh, other numbered uh, resolutions, 1820, 1888, 1889, 1960, 2126, 2122. A lot of these, of course, focusing on sexual violence, um, but also, you know, committing to things like a high-level review of what's been done to uh, implement 1325, and that's actually supposed to take place in, well, they're supposed to wrap up their work this, uh, um, this fall. Uh, uh, in addition to those commitments, in 2011, as part of its uh, commitments under 1325, the United States created its own NAP, its National Action Plan um, for, uh, on Women, Peace, and Security. Uh, and uh, in fact, the Institute for Inclusive Security has been absolutely vital uh, in helping uh, build capacity in nations worldwide to uh, create these National Action Plans. And I believe the Institute also hosts a database about which countries have national action plans, which ones have draft national action plans, et cetera, et cetera. We're working with about 20 countries at this point. There are 50 that have national action plans, and we're actively engaged with 20 of them um, in 
where, where they are, you know, whichever continent they are, and they're probably will be within another 12 months, probably 70 or 80. That's terrific. That, that's great. And uh, I met with, with one of the uh, institutes, uh, persons on the ground doing capacity building in places like Syria and uh, Myanmar. And very impressive and, and work. And we should explain, because people don't know, that the Institute for Inclusive Security began here at the Women in Public Policy Program when I was the director. We called it Women Waging Peace. We spun out to, uh, to become its own institute that's DC-based, but also has uh, a contingent here in, uh, in Cambridge at That's terrific. That's great, yeah. Uh, in fact, some of the juiciest quotes in the book come from uh, the DC uh, arm of the Institute, so you'll have to look for those. Um, so just in general, you can imagine, you know, what, you know, some of this is bureaucraties, but, you know, if you're interested, our NAP lays out five primary areas of action. National level integration and institutionalization of a gender responsive approach to yeah you know <laughs> I'm gonna let you read them okay it's bureaucraties um, <clears throat> notice of course the uh, the echoing of an emphasis on looking at gender based violence and conflict and war and so forth and uh, and also the issue of having a gender perspective on humanitarian crises um, now what's cool about the NAP. And if you've never l actually looked at the NAP, I urge you to go look at it. Um, what makes this far more than a bureaucratic exercise, uh, in my opinion, is that for each of these areas, there are sub-goals. For each of the sub-goals, there are actually um, executive agencies or entities that are assigned those goals. And then they've also listed benchmarks. Right, by which these entities can be assessed in terms of how much progress they've made towards these goals. Uh, so in fact, you end up with 80 benchmarks, 80 outcome-based um, benchmarks uh, off of the US uh, NAP. Now, um, under Secretary of State Clinton, and it has not changed under John Kerry, there is in fact a Women, Peace and Security Interagency Policy Committee that reports to the NSC Deputies Committee. So they're supposed to be making reports on these benchmarks, right, to the NSC Deputies Committee. So there's supposed to be a conduit here, right, from assessing what's going on with the NAP straight to the National Security Council. Okay. And then um, NAP, uh, Milan Vivir, I think, uh, you know, she played a role in all of this. And, and in my interview with her, she suggested that they were insistent on these outcome benchmarks because not only did it give the government a way to assess um, the efforts being put forth, but it allowed civil society groups to monitor what was going on as well and, you know, a springboard then for them to say the government is not living up to its commitments. There's a lot more that happened at this, too. I'll go over some of them. Um, GWE was elevated. The Office of Global Women's Issues was literally elevated. Under the George W. Bush administration, they weren't even in the building. They were on G Street, right? So not only did it get into the building, it ended up on the seventh floor, which is as high as you can go, okay? So there was a physical signal of how important women were. And of course, Milan Vivere was given ambassadorial rank. Uh, USAID got a senior coordinator for gender equality and women's empowerment. 
and a revised policy on gender equality and female empowerment, uh, mandating, among other things, a gender component uh, in the design and monitoring of all RFPs, all requests for proposals that would go out from USAID. Um, something that uh, will probably only make you go, really, if you've been in the government, is that the master indicator list was given nine, count them, nine gender-associated outcomes. And um, this is kind of huge um, for uh, the government, uh, in fact, uses this master indicator list in all sorts of things, from funding decisions uh, to programmatic decisions in terms of, of whether progress is being made on the overall goals uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the department. Um, things were happening in DOD. So the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy was tasked with overseeing DOD's efforts to implement the NAP. And the services um, put together a Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. And I think you all know that though it wasn't Hillary Clinton's idea, the notion of a female engagement team or the Lioness Brigades, that happened um, uh, with, the, with the Marines. AFRICOM, one of the combatant commands, has a gender working group, though the others do not. In 2012, uh, Hillary Clinton issued a State Department-wide policy guidance advancing gender equality and promoting the status of women and girls. And this instructed every bureau, embassy, and office to undertake a gender analysis so that there would be a baseline from which the government could then assess its efforts. And lastly, the Foreign Service Institute implemented um, a new gender module um, for the training of all new FSOs. And USAID, some of you may be familiar with the fact that they have Gender 101 and then some subsequent modules for all of their new employees as well. There's more. Uh, the QDDR, as uh, contrasted with the QDR, the QDDR, looking at diplomacy and development, the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review, um, in 242 pages, women were mentioned 133 times. Can't get more front and center than that. Under Clinton, we had, we had so much. I'm just going to read them. Counter-trafficking in person strategy, strategy to prevent and respond to gender-based violence globally, the Equal Futures Partnership, the vision for ending child marriage and meeting the needs of married children, the White House Council on Women and Girls, the Feed the Future Initiative and Global Health Initiative, which both had a large focus on women, the Secretary's International Fund for Women and Girls, the Data 2X Initiative, the U.S.-Pakistan Women's Counselor, cook stoves for women worldwide, meeting with activists, I mean, wow. Hillary Clinton was extremely busy at this level. It is so darn impressive. How to go at ground level? Okay. Well, as you can imagine, maybe it didn't go quite as well as ground level. All right. To to see what happened beyond DC, right? We actually have to look at operations, state AID and DOD, right, as operational agencies. Um, because my time is limited, and in fact, I've probably even gone too long right now. Let's just look at AID, shall we? <clears throat> All right. Something to, to know about AID is that during Hillary Clinton's husband's administration, the Clinton administration, USAID, in a sense, was put under state. 
Um, Hillary Clinton didn't change this, even though in her confirmation hearing she said, I think it's fair to say that USAID, our premier aid agency, has been decimated. It's turned more into a contracting agency than an operational agency with the ability to deliver. Okay, so one of the things that I didn't understand, that I now understand, is that our vision of AID as being out there doing things is not actually correct. AID contracts for things to be done out there. It used to do things. If you go back to the 70s and 80s, it was AID people that were out there, and they were very powerful. In some cases, they were more powerful than the ambassador in the country. Not anymore. Also under Bill Clinton, there's something that you need to know, and this acronym here is a is uh, GIPRA. This is the Government Performance and Responsibilities Act. And um, this is one of those invisible things that people don't know about, but just radically changed everything. This mandated that the government assess all of its programs, no matter who was doing them, every 12 months or less and to terminate or slash the funding of any program that could not demonstrate, A, that it was effective, and B, that it had already used the money that had been allocated to it for that time period of 12 months. You're going to see what happens with that. So GIPRA resulted in some real perversity for AID. Okay. Uh, outcomes needed to be measurable in at least a two-year horizon to be deemed worthy of continuation. So at the 12-month mark, they would say, yes, we're in process. But then by two years, right, they had to show something uh, uh, tangible. Projects also had to meet their burn rate, right, the rate of how much money they had to burn through in a particular period of time. What we mean by burn through is they had to spend it. All of this was in a context where AID personnel shrank in numbers dramatically a 75% reduction in staff since the 1970s. At the same time, while personnel were shrinking, budgets were climbing. So there was more and more and more money and fewer and fewer and fewer people. Uh, and the reporting requirements under GIPRA are amazing in their complexity and, and, uh, and uh, detailed requirements. According to... Um, AID people that I interviewed, 30 to 40 percent of staff effort at AID is devoted to GIPRA reporting requirements. Um, in 2014, when we were finalizing the book, we calculated that every single AID employee would have to burn through $6.7 million a year to keep the funds flowing. Very few organizations can burn money that fast, and hence the rise of the mega contractors, such as Chemonics and Louis Berlinger and many others. Um, the federal granting process is also so cumbersome and can only be done in English, right, that, you know, on the ground, newer, smaller, or indigenous organizations are simply unfundable by AID. And I think part of the work that the Institute for Inclusive Security does is to build the capacity to actually buy for something like an AID contract. In addition, GIPRA focused on outcomes, or, or excuse me, outputs, not outcomes, right? So you, you have to bean count the number of textbooks you printed, the number of schools you built, the number of kids enrolled, okay? The number of classes offered. We even found cases where a contractor was offering the very same class to the very same people multiple times in order to hit their burn rate. 
whether the students learned anything from the textbooks or even attended school after they were enrolled is not the focus of these output indicators. Furthermore, what we were shocked to find out, and I must admit, I don't shock easily these days, but what I was totally shocked to find out in my interviews with AID employees is that by far the overwhelming percentage of monitoring and evaluation reports done on USAID programs are done by the contractors themselves who are implementing the programs. So there's kind of a disconnect, I think we could say, between um, AID and what the U.S. is trying to accomplish on the ground. We're going to see how this plays out for the Hillary Doctrine. And Jones again. We spent too much, too fast, without a clue. Jessica Newworth, of, of formerly of Equality Now. There's billions of dollars and total dysfunctionality at the bottom. So how does this affect the Hillary Doctrine? Well, I, you know, it does. And I feel like I should be hurrying, shouldn't I? Should I be going faster? We're, we're, we're <clears throat> getting to the top of the hour. Okay, get to the top of the hour. We're, we're fascinated. We're oh, I'm so glad. So, so that's what the silence is? It's fascination? Yeah. <laughs> that's good to know. Um, I have the most amazing anecdotes in here, can I tell you, about the dysfunctionality on the ground. Okay, And uh, I, I feel like I can't read them all. But um, AAD projects for greenhouses, where uh, AS, USAID build greenhouses for women and men, but all the contractors on the ground were men from societies in which women don't matter. Bangladeshis, for example, and, and Indians, for example, where women matter less than men. So all of the big, nice greenhouses go to the men. And all of the little, dinky greenhouses that must be shared go to the women. Right. Or another USAID program um, that the RFP called for an investigation of how women's land rights in Afghanistan could be strengthened. And then at the last minute, the entire purpose of the project was stripped. And it was, just tell us what land rights are for women. That's all you have to do. Don't bother making any changes because we know it's infeasible. My favorite one, though, is Bees for Widows. So I'm going to lay that one on you, okay? <laughs> this is my favorite. I'm sorry. Just thinking about it makes me laugh. Where's bees for widows? Oh, yes. Okay, and this is from Peter Van Buren, who I had, uh, he's just a hoot. He wrote a book called We Met Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People. How's that for a title? <laughs> so uh, he and I had an interview. And he told me how the Hillary Doctrine affected what he did in Iraq, because he was one of these uh, PRT staff there. Uh, so after the Hillary Doctrine announced, we were told, do women's stuff. But we were not really given any guidance. In fact, we were told, you're the local experts, right? But we weren't. We had to appoint a women's issues coordinator. So we had one woman in the PRT. She was an agriculturalist. She was a 60-year-old retiree from Wisconsin, very conservative, and not attuned to women's issues. But at least we had a woman. The other PRTs didn't have any women, and they were stuck. My PRT stumbled upon widows. We were going to, quote, unquote, help widows. After all, this was in accordance with Islamic values, and by golly, widows were women. So what were we going to do for these widows? We needed something for widows. 
So we already had a beekeeping operation in place, and so we said we'd limit it to widows, which is how our Bees for Widows program was born. Now, it was hard to find widows because we had no access to the society because we weren't trusted and most of us were men. So individuals emerged who could provide widows. Widow brokers. We filled up our project with brokered widows and sent photos back to the embassy of hijabed women doing things. And then we found a woman veterinarian and we gave her money instead of the male veterinarian. Ta-da! We did women! <laughs> now these things were fed back to D.C. via the embassy in two ways. First, through stats. We reached 450 women this week. Second, stories on PowerPoints. We got very creative in telling these stories. So, for example, about the beekeeping, we'd say something like, quote, this empowered the women and helped change attitudes so that they will participate in the democratic process, unquote. The embassy really liked these, and the PRTs would be patted on the head for doing it. And he says in summary, I find it difficult to cite any way that we helped any women. In Iraq, two large things bumped. Clinton's sincere desire to help women and Iraqi conservative culture. Neither group gave ground. And what was between them, the embassy, wanted Clinton to be happy and feel her goals were being accomplished. But there was incredible turnover, and no coherent plan was put together. My boss changed three times in 12 months. Washington, D.C. has a short attention span. Clinton's in Burma, Clinton's in China. There's no time to stop and say, is it really happening here? She didn't know, but maybe she didn't care to know. Secretaries of State can't claim failure. Ooh, ouch, oh my gosh. Yeah, that wasn't the only problem that we heard about. Um, we had a variety of women tell us those AID contractors that were sent out on the ground were the worst. And they were the worst in several ways. So, for example, um, we, had, uh, we interviewed a Guatemalan woman and we interviewed a um, Colombian woman, both heads of respective NGOs in their countries. And uh, <clears throat> the Myrna Mack Foundation um, said, USAID will come in and say, here's our project. Do you want to do it? They have no interest in asking us what we think needs to be done. And then Patricia Guerrero from the Liga de Mujeres in Colombia. <clears throat> she approached USAID for funds to support a dialogue among women during the peace talks with the FARC. And USAID said, we only have money for post-conflict initiatives. And Guerrero replied, but we're in the middle of the peace process. No dice. She can't get post-conflict money before there's ink on, on that agreement. And she went on to say, the contractors are very conservative. They're often retired military. They don't establish relationships with the communities in which they work. It's not an equal relationship. They think of themselves as gods, very hierarchical, very patriarchal, very pyramidal. They came in and wanted to do what they wanted to do. I think you can see how this is kind of an undermining on the ground of what we hope the Hillary Doctrine would be. There's a lack of hard targets for important outcomes. There is no hard target for representation of women in peace negotiations, even though we are like totally committed under the framework to ensure that that takes place and that is not taking place. Um, the, there's the ugly issue. Okay, I think you know that under George W. Bush, okay, uh, we, 
we have regulations that state that no federal contractor can purchase sex. Doesn't matter if you're off duty. This is a 24-7 requirement. You cannot purchase sex. It's not being enforced. It is like absolutely not being enforced. We have, we have anecdotes that will curl your hair. I have to use a hair straightener. <laughs> we have anecdotes that will curl your hair. And what's worse, I think, 227 here, is the effect that this has on local staff, male local staff. Here's one, um, <clears throat> one U.S. Uh, worker who says, one of our local staff, and she's in Afghanistan, a really great enlightened guy once came up to me and said, you seem like a really nice woman. How can you work with such pigs? Apparently, the cop, the chief of party, and D-cop, deputy chief of party, used to discuss how they would pay young girls to have group sex with them in Dubai and Thailand right in front of the Afghan male staff. So this kind of modeling, inappropriate modeling, on the ground by the contractors who are supposed to be implementing the Hillary Doctrine, among other things, is not helpful. And then lastly, we could go on and on about lack of will at the top, but I think, and I'll, I'll just say that and I'll leave it lie, have we seen a difference in what the U.S. government is doing for women after Hillary Clinton stepped down and John Kerry took over from her? despite all that regulatory framework. Yeah, we have. Okay, if there's no will, it doesn't matter that you've got commitments under this, that, or the other. It isn't gonna happen. So what's the future of the Hillary Doctrine? Well, look, those legal obligations, those benchmarks, the NAP, it's all gonna still persist, right? And that gives us benchmarks for looking at things. These days, you have to, you have to have some rhetorical flourish about women in your speech, okay? I don't know if you've noticed this, but somewhere there's got to be one or two sentences about women. It's de rigueur now. It didn't used to be. Now it is, okay? That's good. That's change. Yet, what happens, okay? The, the, uh, we would claim through our analysis that oftentimes when it reaches ground level, the ball is dropped. It's not just dropped. It's thrown far, far away so you can't see it anymore, okay? And that there's some real problems in implementation. However, folks like Don Steinberg, he was optimistic. He acknowledged all of these problems. In fact, he said to me, Valerie, the very last act that I did as Deputy Administrator for USAID before I left for World Learning is I, I sent out, you know, a communication to every single uh, contractor saying, you are required not to purchase sex. He said, I realized what the problems were, and I wanted to make sure that my last act was to try to add some teeth to that. But, you know, he, he failed. He failed. But he was optimistic. He says, look, I think the younger generation gets it. Their marriages are different, okay? The society... You know, the, the, the norms of the younger generation are different concerning uh, women. Those FSOs are getting a gender module the minute they step in the building. USAID contractors get gender 101, all right? If we can change the next generation, then we will eventually see the Hillary Doctrine taken seriously. So what might the to-do list look like then? 
Okay, and we have just a few things here, and I think I can close up fairly briefly and just tell you that we have an entire to-do list, and I really urge you to buy the book so that you can see it. Um, our our to-do list includes things like, uh, and this is something that Swanee Hunt taught me, the power to convene, the power to invite, the power to demarche. Are we using those for women? Are we calling people in and demarching about the situation of women? When we have various donor conferences or other sorts of conferences, where are the women? Could we have hard targets so that somebody could say, you know, we haven't hit our 35%, 40% quota of women, have we? Right? That's a lot different from saying, do we have a few women who are coming? Totally different optics and totally different outcomes, I would suggest. It's also important that the government act as a conduit of information. Women know things men don't, right? And uh, Farrah Council, one of the uh, Institute's um, employees who gave me a, a wonderful interview, said, we were at the peace negotiations in, between Sudan and South Sudan. And they were arguing over this riverbed and whether that would become a border in a particular area. And there happened to be a woman in the room and she said, don't you know that riverbed dried up about eight years ago? There is no river there anymore. <laughs> All right. Women also know where the bodies are buried. They literally know where the bodies are buried. Women know where the mines are because they tell their children not to play there. So what women know has got to be part of what the U.S. government knows, right? And then, of course, the men know things the women don't, right? The women don't know, to a large extent, what's going on in these meetings, what's being decided in the closed rooms by the powerful men. So it needs to be a two-way street. Real information, we could talk about that forever. Things like harass map in Egypt, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but real-time ability to text in assaults that are happening and have a response happen. Um, I feel like I can't go into as many as I'd like. Um, in the book, we argue. I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with just war theory, which talks about use ad bellum, how one can be moral, morally justified in going to war, and use in bello, how can one morally conduct oneself within war. But we argue that there is a third type of use, if you will, that isn't spoken of. And one of the reasons it isn't spoken of is because, in a sense, it really is kind of a women's issue, which is use ex bello. When you are leaving a conflict, when you are pulling your troops out, how do you morally conduct that withdrawal? What do you owe the women you left behind who stood up and are now open and exposed to be shot? I think that's very important. And in fact, we have an entire chapter on Afghanistan where we lay out what we think should be done, use ex bello, for the women of Afghanistan. I hope you'll take a look at that. Um, let's talk male accountability, right? <laughs> Contractor compliance, sexual assault in the U.S. military, sexual assault and predation by U.N. peacekeepers. Male-focused programming is probably what is needed, such as we see from ProMundo. Right, to try to suggest that males can hold other males accountable for what they do to women. That's important. Looking inward, right, we could talk about things like Ivawa. We could talk about things like paid maternity leave. We have two senators who've introduced a bill to mandate that FMLA 
become two-thirds paid FMLA. Okay? Those are the kinds of issues that we need to support. I think you can tell I'm, I'm up for reforming the U.S. Foreign Assistance System. I'm up for reforming how GIPRA interacts with that system. Um, I'm up for mustering presidential will, and it'll be interesting to see who our next president is. Maybe we won't have a problem in the will department. <laughs> and then, um, you know, creating uh, a, what might be considered an R2P norm within the interstate system. I'll never forget in the interview I had with Lauren Wolf, and some of you may know Lauren Wolf. She created Women Under Siege, um, which uh, tracks what's happening with um, uh, female human rights defenders and female journalists around the world. And she herself is a journalist, and she's a frequent com um, columnist for foreign policy. And she said, she said, Valerie, you know, and this was a few years ago, of course, she said, get so mad when President Obama makes chemical weapons the red line in Syria. Why is it what's happening with women a red line? Why is it never a red line? Right? And you know, the more I thought about that, the more I thought, you know, is there some way to create a norm within the international system that not only says, tut, tut, you're, you're importing uranium, we're now going to do these sanctions on you, or tut, tut, you're practicing apartheid, we're going to do these sanctions on you. How about tut, tut, look what you're doing to women, we're going to impose these sanctions on you. You know, can women become part of that sort of R2P-ish norm, right, that holds states accountable for what they're doing with their people? And we have a little section on that. All right, final thoughts. Here I am, Hannah, final thoughts. Doing great. Thank you. <laughs> In the final analysis, the Hillary Doctrine's legacy will be judged, I think, by whether the phrase the Hillary Doctrine actually disappears from the vernacular. And disappears not because we've forgotten about it, but disappears because it is so accepted, right, as a standard frame of reference founded on a firm evidentiary base. So it's not this radical new doctrine, but this is obviously the, you know, the most clear-eyed view of things. And then when that day comes, I think seeing women as integral to national and international security will have become as natural and unremarkable as not seeing them once was. And I hope that day comes sooner, not later. Thank you. Well, I got lots of hands. Uh, I don't know. Hannah, do you want to pick people? Should no, I pick people?
is still the same as it was in the 70s. Yeah. Because these things weren't a priority. Yeah. So you have one human rights officer yeah. who's doing the whole schmear, right? Not, they, even the most well-intentioned right. human rights officer, not all of them are, um, can't give as much depth to it right. to be able to meet the demands that they have. Um, so to some of your questions about being to those demarches, you're making sure that it's like real follow through. Person, just one human being can't do it. So how do the, hum the humans or the boots on the ground reflect the demands from DC? Oh, I think that's one of those larger questions, you know, like GIPRA, but I think the whole staffing issue, you know, AID should have a far higher level of staffing than it currently does. If it, if it, if it is supposed to be in the business it's doing. And what you're saying to me is the State Department you know, is facing this, the very same difficulties, and I agree with that, absolutely. I, and I think these larger issues are ones that this is where presidential will comes in, right? This is where real budgetary decisions have to be made. Swani, did you want to yeah, echo that? It was very, very much so, because I got to lead an embassy in Vienna, and in fact, uh, I was there when uh, Tim Worth, who was Undersecretary for Global Affairs, the first one, Send a, a note out to all the ambassadors and said, or the European ones, and said, I'm thinking about adding status of women to the uh, annual report on human rights that is congressionally mandated. What do you think? And I actually was usually, you know, 10 weeks behind in my email, so I, I didn't even see it. I came <laughs> in, you know, I had a meeting every 15 minutes. So I came in, and my assistant had had spread across my desk all these papers and I said, what's this? She said, you need to see this. I said, I don't have time. She said, you stop, you need to see this. And it was ambassadors responding, saying, we are stretched. We can't, we can't gather that data, number one. Number two, um, from a different ambassador, we actually don't have, a, women don't have a problem here. They can walk the streets of Madrid at two in the morning. Um, the third one actually made me mad, which was, to add women to the human rights report would be to trivialize the report. At which point I said, "Oh my God!" At which point I said to Susan, "Cancel my next two meetings. I don't care if they're waiting for me out there." And I just got crazy on the keyboard. Sandoval was told that in fact the the department had already made the decision and that they were actually not even there. They were on a retreat. Told later by Tim Worth, who was an old Colorado like me, the undersecretary, he said, "You're." Your cable came in, which I think he had to handle with asbestos gloves, and he said, I took it on the retreat. We reversed ourselves based on that cable. Now, that's what it looks like, just like in the time I happened to be in town. Susan happened to see it on the cables. Tim happened to pick it up before the retreat. I mean, it, it's so at the human level. But the second, if I may, I'll keep it. No, you short. go for it. I said, okay. After about hosting four things, we did 100 events a year, and it was we had 14 different departments of government because we were a, a platform for a lot of work in other places. So, different organizations within the, the, the our system, where the defense attaché, the cultural attaché, the uh, agricultural attaché, they would come and say, "Ambassador, would you host this event?" So sure. Okay. So after about three, I thought this is boring. Why is it boring? It's all men. So I said, okay. <laughs> 
uh, we had 500 people in the embassy. I said, okay, embassy, from now on, anything I host has to have at least one-third women, and they can't be spouses. Hmm. And so next, the next <laughs> list that comes to me is about uh, NATO enlargement. It's all men. And I, uh, Colonel Miller, could you come into my office? You know, I guess our emails uh, cross, you know, inside the space. <laughs> and he said, well, actually, uh, Ambassador, you know, Colonels, they, they take orders, right? Uh, actually, Ambassador, no, I did see it. I'm so sorry, there aren't any women concerned about NATO expansion. <laughs> you know what, Colonel? I'll tell you what, I understand your problem. Oh, so here's the deal. Uh, you can find the women, or I'll find the women. I'll tell you where I'll find them. I'll find them in the armed forces. I'll find them, actually. Uh, I'll ask people in the Austrian armed forces who is a woman that I should invite. I'll go to the diplomatic academy. I'll open my mind to who the kind of people are that I want to have here. I'll invite some media women. I'll invite, you know, women NGOs. And he slunk away. The other thing, although the first <laughs> of this, is we host a policy forum uh, at the Institute for Inclusive Security, about 500 people every, every year. So we give people tables, and our one requirement is 60% of the people at your table have to be men. So it, it works in reverse, This the hard targets. Now, we say 60 because we want 40, right? And at the last minute, they'll, you know, whatever reasons, I will, well, the men flake off is basically. So, and they say, hey, Emily, you know, I can't go to this. I've got some things to do. But hey, Emily, you're interested in women. You're a woman. Why don't you take my seat? Yeah, that kind of crap. But it's very, very important that the hard target be in the other direction. That's fantastic. I was writing notes for my next book. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so you talked about like a whole bunch of impressive changes that happened as a result of the Hillary Dodd. At one level. At one level. And then you talked about how it looked, was not so successful on the ground. Were, so there, I have two questions. One is, were there some success stories on the ground? Like, oh, did, yeah. Did this, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the second one is, obviously, even if there is some success, it's very hard to translate this one to this one. So. Given that you know you have a long list of sort of recommendations, if there were only a couple of things that you think would be most likely to translate the high level into what's yeah. happening on the ground, what would those be? Oh, I'm so glad that you said that. That's terrific. Uh, in fact, I, I want to, to tell you that each of these to-do list things gives positive examples. You know, so for example, harass map and others. I mentioned a few of them, but positive examples of what could be done. If there was someone who you know really cared about it and was willing to say, "Okay, guys, let's do it," um, and here's a tangent again, so remind me because I'm getting off track. Is one of the another really cool quote we got from Donald Steinberg was this one. He said, um, "Having Hillary as Secretary of State changed everything because what it did is it put women number one or number two on our meeting agendas." He said, "In the previous administration, women were number five or number six. So you never got to them. You could say they were on the agenda, but then you never actually discussed them. And he said, because women were number one or number two, we knew, we knew that we couldn't go to the meeting without something that we knew or could report on concerning women, and that changed everything. So I think Ambassador Hunt is absolutely correct that, you know, I, I don't think you need to stand over people, you know, with a whip or something, or, you know, but hard targets plus, right, this, this notion of, what does Iris Bonnet say? Nudges. 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 Women can't be below number three, <laughs> you know, nudges that will make things happen. 
Uh, one, my favorite success story, and I guess I don't have time to give you more than one, uh, was actually what happened with the FETs, right, the female engagement teams. And this was not an idea that came down from D.C. It was an idea that came up from the grassroots. The notion that you had all these burkhood people that you couldn't search, and some of them turned out to be guys, right, that were the bad guys that you were looking for. And, um, and we had an extensive interview with Matt Pottinger, who was the man who, who originally came up with the FET idea. I thought for a minute we were in some sort of Avenger movie in the Ultrons of come or something like that. Um, but you know what was cool about that? Well, it first starts out as not cool, right? Here's one of the implementation things. So as troops were withdrawn, the FETs were disbanded. There was no FET MOS. The women were just told, yeah, go about your regular MOS. There was no attempt to sort of keep it, continue it, see it as kind of a, a useful function that the Marine Corps, you know, should in fact keep up with. But what was really funny is that the, um, the, the counter-narcotics uh, head at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, Colombia was a former student of mine. And she said, when I read that the FETs were simply being disbanded, I flew to Southcom and I said, give me those women because we're going to have FETs in Colombia. So she got together the Colombians who were enthusiastic because I think, you know, FARC has made, you know, they, they capture women, they kidnap women, but they also recruit them by supposedly this nicer lifestyle or whatever, which is totally bogus. The Colombians were enthusiastic. The Marine Corps was like, okay, you, yeah, okay, we can do it. So out of that was born the FAORs, which I can't pronounce the actual acronym and what it stands for, mm -hmm. but it's the FET equivalent in the Colombian military and the Colombian police. And they're trained not only just to search, but they actually, my student, oh, she did something wonderful. Do you know where she is now? She's now at the embassy in Kabul, which is exactly she said, I don't just want them to be doing searches, right? I want them to know the legal rights of women in Colombia. I want them to know how women who have been raped or women who, who are suffering illegal oppression and discrimination, how they can exercise their rights. So they're, they're not just being militarily useful, right? Is there, they're, they're a total source of information and resources for women wherever they go. And that was brilliant. That was brilliant. But that didn't come from DC either. Right? So I think there's some really fantastic things that are bubbling up that we can we can aid as the government, right? We can give it wings in a sense. I mean, fats now live in Colombia. Who would have thunk? Who would have thunk? Especially since the U.S. military was simply going to let them go, and the whole capability would be. Well, that is a great note to end on. We have a we have a lot of I think we have a lot of that next generation in this room. Yeah, so I sense that. Yeah, I did. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so carry that example with you. All right. Thank you.